Good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode 32 of the Freshman Parking Lot Podcast. We've got a beautiful guest with us tonight, Karen Gefford, who I'm going to let Brad introduce here in a minute. Just want to let everybody know, though, that tonight's show is sponsored by The Grand Slam. We were just talking about a, a local set of quadruplets here before we hit record, and it reminded me that I was actually wearing my Slam Diego shirt this week, and Tatis hit a Grand Slam in spring training. So we're off to a good start for our uh, unofficial uh, fun-is-good spokesperson of Major League Baseball. <laughs> nice. Hey, and I guess if you're giving me the reins to introduce, I don't know if like health froze over. I thought that the weather was getting warmer, um, but the person <laughs> that usually makes fun of me the most for the freshman parking lot is sitting here to my right today. <laughs> um, and I think it's only because of her love for our, our host, Brian Bosch, because um, for some reason she loves Brian and uh, said yes to this request. Um, Hold on, time out. I'm not so sure I felt the love last time I was out there. She looked at me and said, and I blame you for Brad being late for that appointment. <laughs> and I think she meant it. Hey, let's not bring up old wounds now. Come on. <laughs> I, move on that. I think we probably shouldn't talk about that for a multitude of reasons. <laughs> okay. I told you, Brad, today I was terrified of her. <laughs> <laughs> that was a true statement. Anyway, uh, your words, uh, my beautiful wife, uh, Karen yep. Gefford is with us today. And uh, no, she is going to uh, give us some knowledge and some historical background and a little perspective um, on wolves and wolves in Wisconsin. Um, we know we're usually a, a sports show and I think hunting constitutes sports, but um, something that you and I have talked a little bit about and um, Justin um, being an environmental guy and has done a lot of teaching and has a lot of background as well. So I don't even know where all of us stand on it when we get talking, but I think it'll be a great conversation today. And uh, Karen has some pretty good information. And I know, Brian, you knew a little bit about that and asked if uh, Karen would come on. And uh, here she is. So hell did freeze over even with the warmer temperatures this week. <laughs> Love it. And our first female, oh no, second female guest on the, the freshman parking lot. So it's, it's funny you say that with apologies to Natalie Bosch, my beautiful daughter. I was thinking <laughs> the same thing, like Karen's breaking ground here, but Natalie already broke through. Natalie, Natalie we got it. So hopefully she'll listen. This it's always a too. younger woman. <laughs> Wow. All right. Well, hey, start off with awkward right away. But yeah, no kidding. We're going to jump into a cue from Q to try and ease the tension here. Perfect. All right. We've got a baseball one here. Cy Young pitched 749 complete games over the course of his 22 year career. <laughs> like, do we even need a question? <laughs> Holy shit. Only two other pitchers have even started that many. Who are they? Oh, <clears throat> started 749 games. I'm blown away by that. I don't um, even know where to start. Uh, well, obviously, it's old. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, I'm going to throw two names out there right away. I'm going to say Nolan Ryan and Walter Johnson. Yeah, my brain goes to Walter Johnson for sure. Now, Nolan Ryan pitched for a long time, but in the modern era, and he was pitching probably at the start of his career every four days and at the end every five. Ooh, that's a good call. Four to five-man rotation. 
Correct. And if you go farther back in time, it might have been like every other. You think so? Um, I think Cy Young and Walter Johnson and those guys pitched more than every four days. Okay. Um, boy, I don't know who else had that kind of longevity back in that time era, in that time frame. Karen, who you got? Ooh, uh, baseball is not my area. <laughs> I'm going to say Babe Ruth. <laughs> okay, so Did no kidding. He I, was just, I was just thinking that. He was a pitcher, mm-hmm. and he definitely started 749 games, just not as a pitcher. Correct. So it could be a trick question. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hedge my bet a little bit. I'll go Nolan Ryan. And my mind went to Bob Feller for some reason, but I don't know if he pitched enough or enough. He missed season. some. He missed some time in the military. Yeah, I think yeah. maybe was, maybe Warren Spahn could be. How, how about uh, did a guy like Christy Mathewson pitch enough years yeah. to make that happen? I, I'm blown. Yeah. 749 complete games. All right. Um, so I'm sure Karen knows because she's probably an avid listener. We won't reveal the answer till the end. I like yeah, it. I am definitely an avid listener. <laughs> she maybe has listened to one. Like I think episode one, she was uh, listened to. Yeah, it looked. It, it looks like, like it. She, it yeah. looked like she probably did <laughs> for at least a little bit. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, so Justin had a big, huge weekend last weekend. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it, Justin? Well, I'm not sure I would classify it as big and huge. I would. Um, but I did have a pretty fun weekend um, skiing the American Birkebeiner for the first time in my life, um, which is just something I've been for the last three or four years. I picked up cross-country skiing in the wintertime to stay fit and keep my body moving. And so, um, you know, the, the, I set this goal of skiing the Birkebeiner and I did it. And it's pretty fantastic. Um, no doubt about it. Um, now, what do you guys know about the Birkebeiner? It's in Hayward. That's all I know. Okay. Finishes in Hayward. I, I know as much know it's cross country race and that's about as far as I go. And it's, it's the equivalent of like a marathon would be. Yeah. And I feel like it'd probably be a cool party if we could have gone, but we couldn't go. Yeah. This year was really different than normal. Um, in, in a typical year, the Birkebeiner is 48 kilometers. So it's a little longer than a marathon this year. It was 45. And because of the pandemic, no fans, um, it was a loop course. Typically you finish in downtown Hayward on main street, they truck in snow and you drive, you, you ski over a bridge over the highway. It's super, super cool. If you ever have an opportunity to go and watch or ski, it's highly recommended. Um, the biggest thing you need to know about the American Birkebeiner is it is nonstop hills up and down. There's very little flat. You're either climbing or you are descending. Even and- on this loop course, even on this loop course, in fact, check this out. Can you see that right there? Uh, yep. That's the profile of the course this year over the, over the 45 kilometers. And you can just see it is hill climb after hill climb after hill climb after hill climb. So Not question top. about this graph. Is, mm-hmm. is, this, is this graph representative of one loop or is this the entire course? This is the entire course, which this year was a loop. How many times do you go around this loop? Just one. It's one big loop of 45 oh, kilometers. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Um, so you can see lots and lots of climbing, of, of which, to be honest, I was not really prepared for. Um, when I finished, 
I looked at my Garmin data and over the course of 45 kilometers, I climbed vertically three quarters of a mile <laughs> on my skis. It's a lot on skis. It's a lot. Um, and in my training, I had only climbed like a third of a mile vertically. So I really wasn't trained for it. So as we get to like the 30 kilometer mark, um, I experienced some pretty severe cramping in my, my quads that I had never, ever experienced in my life to the point where um, it, it was like, by the time I got to the top of a hill in both of my legs, I had Charlie horses. <laughs> so I just kind of hung out there, kind of shook them out, you know, and then down the hill and it happened again going up the next one and that was kind of the <laughs> final 15 kilometers for me <laughs> well and what and what i find impressive is you're a guy that runs like 50 miles for fun in a day yeah yeah right so and, for you to say that that's not like a, a person who's who's not prepared uh for that so i think that tells me how physically daunting the task is to do that on skis and and i've never been on cross-country skis so i'm the last person that should even comment on this yeah yeah it's it's pretty intense i've i've, I've never the only time i've ever had a cramp like that is literally a charlie horse getting out of bed and this was on just about every climb for the last 15 kilometers what the hell now, were you doing in bed that you got up with a charlie horse oh you've never gotten out of bed like in a weird way and gotten a charlie horse kind of bad cramp no, man, I hit the floor and I'm ready to roll. Okay, well, look, I am older than both of you. I guess like the Tin Man, I need a little oil to get everything kind of going in the morning. I don't know. Hey, so based on that pain, would you do the Berkey again? Absolutely. I've already, we've already reserved an Airbnb cabin for next year. And as soon as I can register in May, I'll register in May. And as soon as that happens, I'll send a little note to my buddy Brad and say, hey, Brad, can I have my personal days on these days? <laughs> uh, how would you and, and how did you train for that? And how would you train differently next year to prepare for uh, next year's race? Yeah, being my first one this year, I was mostly concerned with time on skis. So I worked my way up to my longest ski this, this winter was 26 and a half miles, knowing that the, the Berkey was going to be about 28 miles long. Um, and that's fine and good. But next year, my mantra is the hills pay the bills. I was and just going to say that, man. Yeah, that what, what I need to do is, and I think anyone who wants to, to try the Berkey is pay attention to how much, how many vertical feet you climb each session and work your way as close to three quarters of a mile as you can before the, before you race. To give you an idea of what those, those hills are like, you see a video in front of you right now? Yeah. This is within the first like two miles of the start line. And this is an old video, but I found it. I like it. That hill that those folks are about to climb, that's like typical. So, so just to give you a, an idea of the rolling terrain and, and what the hills look like, oh, yeah. they're not little by any stretch of the imagination. Like, that's a pretty darn big hill to go up. It's nice like if you're going down it. <laughs> well, they're going down one, but then look into, you know, yeah. up into the front. You know, I, I told my, my sister who skied seven or eight Berkeys now when I got done, I said, there was this one hill I went down. And I don't think I've ever gone faster in my life on skis. It was the fastest I've ever gone. And when I got to the bottom of the hill, I looked up and I was going to climb a hill that was bigger than the one I just went down. <laughs> and I just swore out loud 
just like just at anything that was around me. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. What is going on here? So that's awesome. Hey, yeah. so did you ski it with your sister or were you with anybody or were you kind of solo? Well, my sister and I were in the same wave because um, we're about the same fitness level, but she's she's a little faster than I am. So right from the gun, we skied on our own. It's kind of hard to ski someone else's pace. So it's not um, like running. No, not so much. And this year, because of the pandemic, they really spread everybody out. So look at all the skiers in this video here. Um, this year, I started in a wave with only about 100 people. So there was a stretch of the course for maybe 10 kilometers where I really didn't see anybody. Okay. It was just kind of me in the woods. How, by How the way, hold on. Let's look at the title of that video, Skiing the Berkey Hills, Bitch Hill. <laughs> yeah, there, this is not Bit Hill, but there is a hill called Bit Hill, um, about six or seven miles from the finish. Um, and you can probably figure out why it gets its name. There's also a hill in the first 10 kilometers called Heckler's Hill or Bobblehead Hill. And Heckler's Hill has its own Facebook page. That's awesome. There's the picture. <laughs> that is awesome. For those of you just listening on podcast, not on the YouTube channel, it's just some dude on skis face down in the snow. It is sweet. <laughs> Heckler's Hill is a descent with an almost 90 degree left-hand turn at the bottom. And it's got this super, super strong reputation as a place where people crash. And so snowmobilers drive out to the course to Heckler's Hill, crack open a case of beer, <laughs> and then they, well, I'll let you watch. Can you hear sound? Yeah. Yeah. Not super clear, but. <laughs> yeah, I can hear that. And they cheer. And they yell. They want people to fall. Brad, I know where we're going. I know where we're going. We can get that. We can set up a, a podcast on the corner there. Yes. And, uh, we just need to find some snowmobiles. Hey, I kind of know the answer to this already, but I have to be. <laughs> you, do you think it's too soon to make a, a Tiger Woods reference here? <laughs> well, and, and I didn't know we were going there today, but I'll tell you, it, it's, probably, it's probably too soon, but I'll say too soon for – at what point does he just get a driver? Dude's worth millions and millions of dollars. Billions, yeah. Yeah. He, he can afford someone to drive him around like three strikes and you're out. I know he's not a baseball guy, but um, hey, that's like a triple bogey now. No more driving, Tiger. Yeah. Okay. Well, they, the first one, I guess I, guess I was going to say it wasn't his fault, but it was kind of his fault. But it was. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't his. It wasn't his driving ability. No. <laughs> Uh, Still ended up against uh, what a fire hydrant on yeah, that. With, yeah, with yeah with clubs through the window and you know whatever. I guess it was kind of his fault. A <laughs> little bit, little bit. Uh, so all right, well, well, yeah, so Berkey up and down, big uphills, um, some technical downhills. It's a great time. If you don't want to ski it, everybody should go watch it live sometime. It's absolutely fantastic. Awesome. We're going. So, yeah. So when you when you were in the uh, the North Woods, uh, did you notice any wolf tracks uh, going through the uh, the uh, course? 
Nope, no wolf tracks up there this this year. But I tell you what, I'm on several occasions um, skiing this winter, have seen lots and lots of deer out roaming around, but no wolves stalking them. <laughs> oh, that's like a perfect segue into where we're going. Yeah, I like Brad, it. You are the king of the segue, and Justin, you just tied a freaking bow on that thing. <laughs> perfect. Wow. I'm kind of a little nervous. This is about to be the most controversial thing we've ever done in the freshman parking lot. Well, and, and you sent the message out the other day. Can we talk about this? I would like to talk about this, but I think it's too controversial. And my response was, what's controversial about it? And, and Everybody's I'll it opinions. Up, and I'll, I'll set it up with, you, you sent the message on wolf hunt. Uh, Wisconsin just had a wolf hunt. Uh, came at the end of February and the, and Brian, you, you will know all the details more, but uh, the wolf hunt shut down after three days uh, because the quota was met that the DNR set as a quota limits. And then the last five days that there was supposed to be hunt, there was just no hunt that there was no more uh, hunting to take place. And, And my response was what's controversial there's a limit, there's a carrying capacity of wolves in the state. I think it's 300, 350. Somebody next to me is going to fill us in on all the good details. Um, there was a hunt because we have an abundance of wolves and they were delisted. And obviously there's probably way more than we think there is because wolves are hard to hunt. Yeah. And they met quota in three days. So I don't know what is super controversial about that, except people's feelings on how they feel, you know, that wolves should be treated as animals or hunting in general. Right. Yes. I guess we know where Brad comes out on this. No, absolutely. And, and I think the, the controversy is exactly that people's thoughts, feelings, opinions, um, perhaps just about, the idea of hunting in general, but then when you talk about an animal that has been on that protected or endangered, or I, Karen, you can fill us in on the difference between all those, all those lists, but it's recently come off of that list. And then the, the hunt ends up over quota, which can I start, can I start spitting numbers? No, let's hold on. Let's hold on. Let's, Let's get some historical background. Okay. We, we have Karen here for that reason. I think Perfect. Justin, um, I'm sure, has some good historical information as well. But I'm going to kind of give the floor to Karen here and say, um, <clears throat> we can talk about position, right? This is an official uh, yeah. work uh, document for you. Yeah. So Karen um, has worked for Wisconsin Farm Bureau for over 10 years now. And um, when she first started working, she worked national affairs And one of the major topics I remember when she started working was uh, the delisting of wolves and wolf hunts in Wisconsin. I know that's something that she worked on 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 behalf of the Farm Bureau. So I'm going to give her an open floor to say, tell us some historical relevance of this situation in the past 10 years or or beyond, if you can uh, help us with that. Yeah, so the gray wolf has historically been listed as a, an endangered species on the Endangered Species Act. That act was uh, passed by Congress in 1973. Um, the gray wolf has seen historic population declines prior to that. So if you think 1973 is when the act started, 
Um, we look at gray wolf populations starting really um, having some sort of numbers tracked starting in the 80s. We started at about 25 wolves in the 80s. And then, you know, every decade in the 90s, we're at about 34, 2000, we're at about 248, 2010, 704. And then in 2020, we're over a thousand animals. So those populations uh, most recently are taken by the Wisconsin DNR over the winter time. So if you think about any kind of uh, wildlife in the winter, that's the hardest time for them uh, as far as populations go. A lot of uh, death, um, you know, winter weather is harsh. And so uh, there's declines in populations. That's um, before we have offspring that come in in the spring as well. Um, so that's what we kind of uh, use as a uh, the lowest possible population number. Now there's lots of varying opinions on, you know, is that really uh, an accurate number? Well, that is the data we have. A lot. There are many people out there who say, you know, that's not even close to what we have. We have far more. Uh, some people think that that's an overestimation whatever that is, that those are the statistics that we have and, and we're using to base our management plan on. So, um, you know, from a federal level, we didn't start talking about delisting the gray wolf as a, a species throughout the U.S. until about the 2010s. And then that started taking place um, out west and there were some challenges to that. So between 2010 and now, there have been some on and off delisting court challenges, relisting of the wolves. Um, the Out in the Northern Rockies, we have the gray wolf was actually delisted in, in about seven states and has remained off of the endangered species list in those areas as the populations have recovered. The uh, Great Lakes region where Wisconsin currently is was not included in that delisting. Um, the federal court challenges have ranged from technical uh, issues with the actual process of delisting from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, all the way to uh, understanding historical ranges of wolves and basically establishing that wolves have not reclaimed their historical range, not necessarily that they haven't reclaimed their population numbers, but uh, been found in their historical ranges. So variety of different uh, rationales as to why court cases have have <clears throat> happened. Um, and we have seen now over the past probably five to seven years legislation looking specifically at our Great Lakes region and delisting the gray wolf and, and not having it subject any longer to judicial review. Um, there are some varying opinions that judicial review is very political when this should be something that's based on science. Um, yeah. And we all, um, you know, we all understand that politics are sometimes slow, and that is that can be really frustrating for stakeholders, specifically farmers who are uh, have been kind of at a, a pretty put in a difficult spot when you have a, a apex predator who's listed on the endangered species list and they have no recourse as to how uh, they protect their livelihoods. So there's a uh, th there's a whole lot more I can talk about, but what other what other questions do you have? Well, I, I guess maybe I misunderstand, and it's quite possible I misunderstand what you said. With the one of the concerns is not reclaiming their traditional range. 
why would that matter? They, they seem to have reclaimed other ranges just fine. Why does it matter if it was their traditional range? And could that possibly have something to do with whether it be climate change or development uh, from humans or like, why does it matter where they are as long as the population is what they're saying it is? Sure. Well, I'm definitely not a wildlife biologist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I couldn't tell you what the historical range is of the gray wolf. I just don't know that. Um, I think, I think the premise behind reestablishment of the historic range is that that prior to uh, human interference, that would have been where the wolf would have been located in a natural setting. Uh, So that's the basis of uh, criteria when it comes to delisting animals within the Endangered Species uh, Act. And and my question, you kind of finished with the importance for farmers and and you work on behalf of farmers. Why is the delisting important to Wisconsin farmers and what benefit do those farmers have um, with the delisting of uh, the wolf? That's a great question. So when you have an animal uh, that's a predator that's listed on the endangered species list or, or a non-predator, there is zero opportunity for uh, someone to, sh- to, depred- to kill an animal if they are seen to be a problem, a nuisance. Um, so we have had instances where individual wolves or packs of wolves have, you know, they're an apex predator. So they, they are very smart. They learn, uh, they can change behaviors. Um, great thing about wolves and apex predators. Uh, That makes it very difficult for farmers because they don't have the option to protect their livestock, which are their livelihoods. So we have farmers who are uh, grazers, who who are out in uh, the north woods and up against uh, wooded areas who have wolves sitting right on the edge of their field, who run back and forth along fence lines and taunt animals. So not only do you have animals who could be depredated, Um, you have stress from those animals, uh, you know, with a predator so close, you have a reduction in fertility rates because of the stress from, from that, uh, predator being present, um, movement of animals off of pasture closer to barnyards. And, uh, essentially all that does is move the predators closer to the barnyard and that farmer's home where their family is. Um, you know, so the delisting is important for farmers because once that animal is taken off the endangered species list, while they can't just go out and, and shoot wolves, that's not part of the deal. If that, if they do have a wolf that's in the act of depredating their livestock on their farm, they have the ability to, to take care of it, to, to shoot that wolf. Um, they wouldn't have that opportunity if that wolf was listed on the endangered species list. Uh, they do have alternative management options uh, when the wolf is delisted as a, an endangered species, um, you know, and the, the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will come out and, and help with implementing some of those techniques. Our wolves are smart. They're an apex predator. So they, they learn um, and either they figure out another way or then they move on. And really the goal is to get those individual wolves or packs to move on. But once they've learned how to hunt livestock, it's very difficult to unlearn that behavior. So that, I mean, that is essentially how, uh, how farmers are impacted for the most part. And, and that stress of having, you know, of an individual farmer, of having, 
wolf, uh, wolves present around their livestock, around their family, around their farm. That's not something that just goes away after a depredation happens on their farm. That is, that is uh, stress and anxiety on that person mentally for long periods of time, years and years. That's financial implications of having to change your farming practices. I mean, there's a whole host of um, implications that come with, with uh, wolves being present and, and not being able to be well-managed. Am, am I right that there is additional funding available if there was a depredation based off of if that wolf was listed or delisted? So there's a fund in Wisconsin called the Wildlife Damage Abatement and Claims Program. Uh, so wolves and, and other animals, when they have uh, damage to whether that's livestock or crops, um, and in this instance, it'd be a livestock from a wolf, yeah. you know, the farmer can uh, make a claim for that, that animal uh, and they can be reimbursed for that. But that reimbursement doesn't come close to the actual loss that that farmer incurs. So it's, it's something and that's appreciated. Um, it's, it's not everything. But if the wolf was listed still, that money would or would not be available. It would. Okay, so it's available either way. Yes. <clears throat> now, I was under the impression that regardless of the listing state um, of the wolf, if a wolf was taking my goats, for example, as a farmer, I would still have the ability to shoot it. Um, you're saying that's not that's not right? Only if the wolf is delisted. Got it. So if okay. that wolf is on the endangered species list, there is nothing that farmer can do. What are the what are some of the methods farmers use to discourage wolves from preying on their <clears throat> their livestock? So they they call the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and they come out and they evaluate you know what the issue is, um, and then they analyze uh, what kind of mitigation strategies they want to use. So um, one of the most common uh, techniques we hear about is flagging. So essentially, you take uh, flags and you run them along the edges of the pasture. And when those flags flap in the wind, they are uh, a deterrent for wolves. So that is the, that is the major um, technique that's used. Okay. So I've seen, I've seen a little bit of that. And honestly, I mean, that's a, it seems like a pretty simplistic thing. It's almost like uh, like a scarecrow, but it, <laughs> if it works, it works. I, and I would, I would say that probably another method, Justin would be, illegal killing of wolves <laughs> sure shoot sure. shovel and shut up probably sure. um, <laughs> and um, what's the how many animals are taken a year right now do we know that like on farms uh i would have got i, would have, I have some of that up. numbers i have some of those so <clears throat> the um the most recent numbers that i could find and i believe they were 2019 or 2020 if we go livestock uh cattle there's well, I can give you totals. There's uh, in cattle, um, captive deer, sheep, alpaca, potbelly pigs, and horses. So there's 65 of those killed and 25 injured. And obviously that's what's reported. And then nine non-livestock animals, there was 28 dogs that were killed and six were injured. Most of those dogs were killed while hunting. Mm -hmm. um, I think like 24 out of the 28 dogs that were killed were killed while hunting. So they're, they're obviously out there Absolutely. in a setting that's, that's, 
that's maybe not coming up to somebody's house to, to right. kill their dog. Um, a lot but, of hunters use dogs to, to kill wolves. Well, and, and, bears, and to kill bears. And, and, right, and exactly. I don't so, know how much mountain lion hunting there is being done. But so, yeah. did you say there were, so you're saying there were 65 livestock and then 24 other animals? 28 dogs. 28 dogs. Yep. So, so are, those, are those all from wolf depredations or is that total numbers for that program? That's from wolves. Okay. That's from wolves. So historically, when Wisconsin has had hmm. wolf seasons in the past, most of the wolves that have been harvested, other, I mean, take out our most recent hunting season, most of the wolves that have been uh, harvested have been from trapping. A uh, much lower percentage of animals have been harvested by hunting. Uh, this year is different because of how late the season actually was implemented. There wasn't the ability for trappers to really get in and set their traps with the frozen ground. Um, and, and plus they were leaving trails when they were walking through the snow to set their traps. So it was, uh, it was a, a significant reverse when we looked at the harvest quotas and the percentage of animals that were uh, harvested with uh, the use of dogs. So interesting statistic. Well, let, let's talk well, about that. I think, I think the state of Wisconsin originally <clears throat> planned to have the hunt in November. And then there was a court case that someone put in place to have the hunt move to February. So there would be snow on the ground. At least that, that was the thought perhaps. So the delisting was announced at the end of October from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Department of Interior. It takes 60 days for that uh, delisting to occur, for the notification to go out. So the actual delisting occurred January 4th, I believe. I think that's um, right, yeah. Yep. And so once that happened, the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board met and had a meeting to determine whether or not they were going to uh, implement a hunting season in Wisconsin. Our state statutes state that there should shall be a hunting season from, I believe it's mid-November until the end of February. Um, because we didn't have uh, the delisting occur until within that hunting season, there was some disparity as to whether or not a hunting season must be implemented. Yep. The Natural Resources Board voted not to have a hunting season in 2021 when they had their meeting. That was challenged by a circuit court case judge in Jefferson County, uh, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty on behalf of Hunter Nation filed that court case in Jefferson County and that judge ordered the, the Natural Resources Department to immediately begin the process of implementing hunting season. Shortly thereafter, the next week, the Natural Resources Board met, had an emergency meeting, and implemented the hunting season to take place. The quotas were set, how the uh, number of licenses were to be issued, and started that process. So they essentially only had about nine days from the time that applications were due and um, licenses were issued to the end of the statutory hunting season. And as we saw, it only took three days to meet those quotas. Hey, yeah. just, for, just for fun, what is Hunter Nation, uh, the group that <clears throat> did the uh, lawsuit and, and what kind of, what is that comprised of? Um, so I was just doing a little bit of research. Uh, the CEO, <clears throat> Um, used to be uh, involved with, I think, the former CEO of Pro uh, Americans for Prosperity, so a conservative group. 
Um, Hunter Nation is located out of, uh, is it Kentucky? Kansas, I think. I think. Kansas, I Kansas? believe. Yeah. Okay. Kansas. That's right. Um, their CEO is actually from Wisconsin. He's a UW Madison grad, uh, lives in Marshfield, Wisconsin. Um, but their board is made up of a variety of, of a variety of different stakeholders, a lot of hunters, a lot of, um, hunter guides, uh, hunter show hosts, some uh, people in the country, um, country music business and, uh, just the, the, uh, I think Ted Nugent was on, uh, their, <laughs> on their board. Um, so a, a, a variety of different well-funded individuals, uh, are behind Hunter Nation. Hey, so why Jefferson County for that case? But for, uh, for those of you who don't know, that's where we're all sitting right now. And I had no idea until we started looking at the show that that's where this drive from. That's a good question. Um, I, I am not an attorney. And so I would, there's always a strategy behind where you file a court case. Jefferson County is, I think, uh, pretty close to your wow counties, which are your conservative hotbeds in Wisconsin. So probably goes to show that there is uh, some sympathy there for uh, the the cause in which uh, Will filed their their court case. But but in Jefferson County, there well, there may be a wolf, but there was no wolves harvested in Jefferson County, right? So you talking about the wolf hunt? And, so. and Brad Jefferson says County. there may be a wolf because he thinks he saw one. <laughs> I, I'm not going out on a limb there, but I'm just saying there's maybe could be. Absolutely could be. So you're telling me there's so, a chance. So let me ask you guys this. Will you, if there's a wolf hunt next year, and we assume that there will be, register for a tag? No. I Just where we live, I mean, it doesn't make sense to, to do that. Um, you know, there's, there is spots, obviously, in Wisconsin where you can, and, and there's no need. That's not something that I look at wanting to do or is interested in doing. Um, I think if they were in my backyard, that would be a different story though. Right. So um, I just find it interesting from a conservation practice. I find it interesting from an agricultural lens and, and how those overlap with each other and um, you know, carrying capacity in, you know, Wisconsin, we have over a thousand wolves and I'll ask Brian, you might know what carrying capacity Wisconsin is around 350. 350. Yep. Where, where did that number come from, Brian? Well, so that's an interesting question. Very um, curious about that. There, there's a long list of people, uh, probably most of which Karen represents at her job. Um, but then there's also, and I couldn't find where the DNR publicly states a carrying capacity, but I've, I've kind of tried to connect some of the dots that they believe the ecosystem can basically handle 350 wolves. And, and, you know, Karen talked a lot about stress on the animals and stress on the farmers. There's, that's, that's one of the major reasons a carrying capacity for any animal is, is established is the stress on those animals. If there's too many of them, they're competing too hard for territory. They're competing too hard for mates. They're competing too hard for food and it stresses them. And there might be a huge population, but they may not be as healthy as if they were at their proper carrying capacity. Or they move outside of their appropriate habitat. Sure. Which, which we have seen a little bit of when we look at the map of historic range for 
wolves starting in the 80s and as the population has grown how they've moved further and further south uh, now they do tend to stick to the heavily wooded areas you know that's a safe secure um, protected uh, range and habitat for them but the 350 uh, plan the, or, or I would say harvest or not harvest um, management plan yep. is from a 1999 Wisconsin wolf management plan. So that takes into account a variety of different science at the time, data at the time, social science at the time, uh, population at the time. Now, it's a little misleading that that wolf, uh, wolf management plan says 1999. That plan has been looked at since then. Um, the department actually has a wolf advisory, a wolf management advisory committee. They haven't met recently, but in 2014, they had a draft plan that was um, supposed to be implemented that would have been the 2015 to 2025 wolf management plan. And that didn't uh, end up coming to fruition and being affirmed because of the delisting status of the wolf in late 2014. So, um, so you, there have been some attempts to update that plan. Um, there is an effort right now by the DNR to start constituting a new wolf management plan uh, committee. So they will be looking at uh, reestablishing and bringing together stakeholders, bringing together uh, updated science, behavior of animals, uh, impact on other animals in the food chain. And so, and, and that will be a significant um, gathering of information and data in order to make some recommendations from that committee through the DNR staff. And then ultimately the uh, approval, it'll go to the public for public comment and then final approval will go to the natural resources board. So it's a process, uh, lots of opportunities for input from stakeholders. Um, the tribes are part of that process as uh, you know, they should be. And so it's, um, you know, it's a well thought out, uh, very comprehensive plan. All right. So that, so that 350 doesn't sound like a real carrying capacity number then to me. Um, I got a couple issues. If it was in 1999, that's old. It sounds like that's the number they think is sustainable long-term based on um, cultural values mixed in with um, natural resources. It's not just, when I look at carrying capacity, I, I simply say, what can is there enough biomass, enough energy? How much energy can we give to these wolves? It sounds like that 350 isn't really a true carrying capacity number from a science point of view. At least that's kind of how I'm hearing it. I'm not sure. Correct. Uh, at any rate, if the carrying capacity was 350 in 99, clearly something's wrong with that number because for 20 years, we've had more than that approximately. Well, it's not a, because it's they've been on a list. Well, we haven't oh. been able to do anything legally yeah. about it. Oh, the, the Endangered Species Act has been fantastic for the wolf. It's yeah, a absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The wolf's best wonderful. friend. It's absolutely it's a wonderful. Story. Absolutely. That's yeah. fantastic. So I guess our, in, in the end, in the end, if for me, uh, we had what, 80 livestock, 90 livestock, fewer than 100 livestock killed this year by wolves. And we've shot more than that. And to me, I don't think we should be hunting them. Um, 
I guess that's, that's where I stand on it. Um, and, and I'm not against hunting by any means, but to me, shooting a wolf is more about trophy and less about providing for your family or providing food. Um, although, uh, although, think- although if you take care of, you know, if you've got a wolf attacking your, your, your crop or not your crops rather, but your animals, um, I understand that taking care of a wolf at the time um, is taking care of your family and putting food on the table. Um, I think if I go out where, I mean, where I live in a subdivision in town and I say that I want to go hunt wolves, I think that's probably a little bit more about trophies. I think that a lot of the people in Northern Wisconsin, it's, I'm not saying there's none of that going on, but I think it's about a lot more than that. I think it's about protecting their livelihood and their, their land and their pets and their livestock and all that stuff. In, in my opinion. I disagree. This, 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 this came, this is a lawsuit from a hunting group with a bunch of well, well-funded folks who don't own farms in Northern Wisconsin. No, but the people who did the hunting own the farms in Northern Wisconsin. Some of them, some of them, but how many, how many of the, the tags were sold to out-of-state folks? I don't have that data. I know there was 28,000 people that applied in a short window and they only gave out 4,000 tags. Right. I guess in the end, I, I get, I'm okay with the hunting. I don't like it, but I accept it, you know, because we do have a large wolf population and it's far larger than when you and I were born, which is, makes me happy. Makes me happy to know that there are wolves roaming around in the, in Northern and Central Wisconsin wo- uh, woods. Um, but I don't like that. I don't like that trophy hunting. I, guess. I think it's, I think it's far larger than what is being reported and you know Karen you said they hang out in heavily wooded areas well that's part of the problem with with how we're creating a population number and I I looked at three different states because I could find three different states I found so Wisconsin does a few things in terms of how they report the numbers and I'm going to tell you they're all very very intentionally um, conservative in the number they're given in the number they're publicly stating. So in Wisconsin, they track from radio collars. They track from summer howl surveys. Okay. <laughs> so if I hear a wolf, somehow that equates to a certain number of wolves. Okay. Uh, by the way, it's got to be reported by somebody, heard by somebody, verified by somebody. I'm not sure how you do that. Yeah. I was drinking beer last night on the deck and I heard a wolf. How are they verifying that? And, they, they do winter snow tracks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, recovery of dead wolves, depredation investigation, and then a collection of public observation reports. Okay. Um, in, in Minnesota, they do a lot of the very, very similar things. In Idaho, in Idaho, they track their wolf population by estimating a number of wolves in a pack and then estimating the number of packs and then extrapolating that out. And I'm not saying they're doing a bad job. I'm not sure how else you would track this population. I'm just saying I think it's wildly inaccurate and probably wildly low would be my opinion on that. I don't think you can conclude that because the data collection is sporadic, because that's the best we can do, that the numbers skew high or low. 
I think all we can say is that we don't really know what the exact numbers are. Well, if, if we killed that many in that short amount of time on a wolf, on an animal that is so smart, I think there's far more than what is being reported. Or, or we're pretty damn good at killing things. And if we continued this, we could get the population back to where it was in 1960, zero in a matter of a few weeks. I'm not so saying it needs a- to be zero. I think it needs to be less. So there's a couple things. To Do you think it needs to be less? Yes. Because so, of predation? Yes. Okay. So wolves learn, uh, learn behavior. So when mm-hmm. we have gone for, you know, since 2014, since the last time we had a hunting season, many of the wolves that exist now have never had the threat of a hunting season. Um, so they have never learned to be fearful of humans because what do they have to be fearful of? So when we talk about management and and one of the roles of our department of natural resources is to manage our wildlife populations, you know, proper management with, you know, a, a combination of, uh, stewardship for those animals, as well as managing the, the levels of population, you know, that's, that's probably the key here and what the right balance is has yet to be determined. One of the criteria for delisting is that states that have wolves have, have to have a wolf management plan approved by the Department of Interior. So Wisconsin's wolf management plan has been approved mm-hmm. uh, and is overseen for five years after delisting by the Department of Interior to ensure that, Justin, just what you had just said, that we don't significantly reduce the population and there is a threat of needing to relist uh, that species back on the endangered species list. So there are a lot of checks and balances along the way that are in place to uh, prohibit that kind of thing from happening. Mm -hmm. The DNR has always taken uh, from the historic wolf hunts that we've had um, starting in, you know, 20, what was it, 2012, have taken a very conservative approach to the harvest quotas that they've established in order to do just that, slowly start to understand what the quotas are, the harvest quotas will do to the wolf population. And what they've seen is, you know, harvest quotas of between 100 and 250 wolves have had a a five to 7% reduction in wolf population in Wisconsin. And as we have larger and larger uh, populations in the state, that management number is going to have to go up for harvest quotas each year. It'll be really interesting to see how a a February hunt is going to impact um, the, the wolf population moving forward. Uh, so a lot of, um, so I had some conversations with the bear hunters and I said, you know, tell me about how you use your bear hounds in order to hunt wolves. And so the philosophy is that, you know, if you have bear hounds, you can put them on the trail of, of a wolf, but you, the, key is to put them on the trail of a single wolf because a single wolf will run a pack of wolves will not and then you don't have any bear hounds left and that's not a good thing so when we look at the number of wolves that were harvested using bear hounds that to me and and I don't have any science to back this up but that to me indicates that we've got a significant number of single wolves and oftentimes the biology behind that is that those are adolescent wolves 
either loners or they're moving between packs trying to create or start their own pack. So what is the implication of harvesting a large number of those younger wolves going to do to the population? Some say we're not going to have the huge impact on population moving forward this coming year breeding season that we could have had we had a hunt that was in, let's say, November, December, because you, you would have harvested more older wolves who are of breeding age. So some really interesting new things, dynamics with the hunting season that took place this year and what kind of um, statistics we're getting uh, from the harvest. Yeah, only way to find out is to let it roll a few years and see. Right. Count. And, and Justin, I would, I would actually 100% agree with you in terms of, I don't know if it was a great idea to, to railroad a hunt through in such a short amount of time, but that's, that's what the, that's what the law said or the, the judge said had to happen. I think I would have agreed with what the DNR wanted to do and say, okay, we got this information late, too late in this, in this window of when we're quote unquote required to have a, a hunt. Let's do this next year. And we have some time to plan. Um, un, un, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess for maybe the wolf hunters, but unfortunately for, for what the plan ended up being, it, it, it got sent through in, in a very, very short amount of time. I guess I'm curious to know, one thing I'd like to know is so our wolf population is fantastic right now. It's a nice, it's a nice size in 19, let's say the 1990s, 20 years ago, what was predation like then? What were the predation numbers 20 <clears throat> years ago? Um, and if we knew that, then we could actually maybe have numbers quantified data on what the increase in wolf population is actually doing to farmers. That would be interesting data to have. So I've got not, not apples to apples, admittedly. I do have how the wolf population from last year to this year, and again, I just, I guess got done saying with how maybe inaccurate numbers are, but they think it's gone up 13%. And they think white-tailed deer population has gone down 13%. And I, I know that's not the same thing, but it no. is a food source of the wolf. It is. Um, but and a, year, a year isn't a trend. We need more data. No, it's yeah, not. Right. Um, I, I will say, though, that there's a lot of people that I know in northern Wisconsin that for the last five to ten years, they, they don't see deer when they hunt. And so they've just stopped hunting deer because – why am I going to spend the money and the time and, and sit out in the cold and not see deer? And they attribute it to wolves. I don't know that they see a ton of wolves, but that's what they think is the problem. Um, and let's be real. Money makes the world go round. Oh. And the white-tailed deer hunt in Wisconsin is, I would imagine, a big part of the DNR's budget. Uh, I've got some numbers, over 820,000 deer tags that goes from youth to gun to archery were sold in Wisconsin last year. And if you just, if you just multiply that out by the youth numbers, let's say those are all youth tags. That's over 16 and a half million dollars. Serious cash. And, and that's just for the tags. That's not for the gear, the food, the beer, the hotel rooms, everything else. Um, that's a big part of the economy. Room. What's that? Trip to the emergency room when you got a gun and beer in the same truck. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, gun first, beer second. It always goes in that order. Yeah. <laughs> At least it should. <laughs> so, 
certainly we're not going to solve the problem. I think it was awesome no. to have, have good discussion. And, and Karen, I, I love all the information that you were able to bring to the table. Um, this is, this is something, Justin, like you said, it, it's not a trend yet, you know, but w- I think it'd be interesting to see the trends over the next few years to see how this plays out. Yeah. And I, 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 I truly believe we're not in a position in society anymore where we will drive the numbers down to zero. I don't think that that's going to happen. This isn't, this isn't the late 1800s where it was, you go shoot and kill whatever you want. And we're not going to think about the long-term ram- ecological ramifications of that. We don't live in that kind of a society and culture anymore. Um, I, just oh, like and, the, I, I just like the idea of wolves running around. Then I, I think the hunting population is, is probably, and this is going to sound weird to non-hunters, but it's, it's the biggest conservation group out there that's, that's going to make sure those types of things don't happen where we reduce a population down to zero. Yeah, you're 100% correct. 100% correct. The hunters and the fishermen are, do more for conservation than the folks who don't do any of those play or participate in any of those sports, without a doubt. And, and I think I'd be remiss to say is I think Wisconsin will be lucky or unlucky, I guess, depending on which side you're on, that they won't have a, a hunting season next year. Because I would imagine, and obviously this is a very political issue, and my personal feeling is that um, you look back to when the last wolves hunt, wolf hunts were and when they were delisted and they were always delisted under a <clears throat> Republican president and they were always listed under a uh, Democratic president. Mm-hmm. So um, I would foresee that this gets caught back up in court. It uh, goes back on the listing and Wisconsin and the Great Lakes region does not get a hunting season come November of next year. But I, I'm speaking just off of thoughts and personal opinions. I don't know, Karen, can you add to that at all? Or Yeah, so there's already a court case filed in San Francisco. So think about how many wolves they have in San Francisco. <laughs> where they, uh, they file the court case. So that's not by accident. The last time the uh, court case was filed, it was in uh, Washington, D.C. Again, so many wolves. Um, but uh, actually, I'm going to uh, I'm going to prove you wrong. When the wolves were delisted the last time, it was under the Obama administration. So interestingly enough, that was under a Democratic president. It is a very political issue. Uh, and President Obama took a lot of heat from his uh, very liberal um, environmental uh, base for for that action, um, but that stood until the courts intervened. So we shall wait to see what happens uh, with this pending court case and how the Biden administration chooses to move forward. By the way, how um, much fun did you just have saying I'm going to prove you wrong? All well, the fun. She had all the fun. It's facts. And, <laughs> and I, yeah. Well, so that, that's been a lot of what I was reading too, though, is, hey, we got to get this through before the Biden administration relists them. Now, my question would be, is there, is there a metric or a number that has to be met on, on a plus side or a minus side in terms of the population to get them on or off of a list? Or is it just strictly in the courts and somebody decides? So the court at this point in time, it'd have to be a court. Um, it'd have to be a court case, or the Biden administration would have to 
um, pull the rule back. So uh, under, when we have a change in administration, any administrative rule that occurs usually within the last 60 to 90 days prior to a president leaving office is kind of paused and held under review. And because of the timing of when this occurred, this very, very well falls into that time frame that the Biden okay. administration could review this delisting and choose to pull it back. Okay. I think I think a number, Brian, is part of that decision, you know, from somewhere over there in Washington, D.C. And both sides of the spectrum cite science and numbers. And of course, they're wildly different from one another. Well, and, and you, you can lie with any kind of statistic. For sure. So that means we, we are treating this 100% as a political issue, or we don't know what the hell we're doing in terms of ecology. Well, I think it, I think it very well is both. <laughs> could be. <laughs> very I, well I could be. I think it's more political, but. All right. Hey, I'll tell you what's not political, though. The Q's with Q. Can you... Give me a non-political answer of who our pitcher pitchers are. I sure can. No, no. So, give it, before you give us the answer, tell us who was president when this guy was pitching. All right. Well, okay. Let's see if we can do that. And then we'll and see was if, a Democratic or Republican. And we'll president. see if Wolves were on the, the wig. <laughs> wig. Right. There we go. So again, Cy Young pitched 749 complete games over the course of his 22-year career. Only two other pitchers have even started that many. Who are they? Um, first of all, Cy Young started 815 games. So he, 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 he only didn't finish less than 100 games. <laughs> okay. Number one is Nolan Ryan, 773. Oh, nice. Okay. All right. Number two. Um, I don't know who the president would have been. Don Sutton, seven fifty-six. Oh, okay. Well, he was a guy pitched in the seventies and eighties. And I do have, I do have some other names on the list, but those are the the top two. Um, Greg Maddox, just shy, with seven forty. Phil Negro, seven sixteen. Steve Carlton, seven oh nine. Clemens, seven oh seven. Not sure how many of them were natural. And. Tommy John, 700. Not sure how many were on his original ligament. Um, I'm, I'm blown away at how many modern era pitchers there are on that list. Me too. Yeah, for Me sure. Too. But if you think about it, they had access to modern medical care. Thank you to Tommy John. And therapies. Tommy John, <laughs> we had, um, Let's, uh, how shall we say, molecules that help the body recover faster than it would if you didn't put them in your body? Vitamin hey, S. Thank hey, you, Brian, vitamin S. Why do athletes take steroids? Because they work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they work. It's not an endorsement, kids. <laughs> um, Brad, do you have a uh, would you rather? I did, and I'm... I, it, it's not relevant. I, I think we all have shown our colors on where my, my, would you rather is, would you rather go wolf hunting or wolf watching? Oh. Um, Cause that is a, definitely a thing. And um, I, Justin got his binoculars out right away. He's got his uh, vortex out and uh, he's going to go watching. And I guess, Brian, I, I'm not sure where would you stand? We, we, we kind of actually talked about it a couple weeks ago. I don't know if Justin was on that week. I'm, 
I'm a hunter. I, I, I don't really have a desire to go wolf hunting though. So, um, and then the reason is I said, I don't want to hunt anything that could kill me. So I don't need to go wolf watching either. So you got to pick one of them though. Are you hunting or watching? I'll watch it from afar. I can watch that shit on TV. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And my thought is if I'm going to watch it, might as well watch with a rifle in my hand. So I'll go. So you're hunting them. I'll go hunting. All right. Um, Hey, when in Rome. All right. So I'm just going to throw out there the. the... Hold on. We have a distinguished guest. We did. Yeah, we do. I'm sorry, Karen. My bad. Uh, I, I would watch. I would, I, you know what? It's been a long time since I've gone hunting and I have nothing against hunting. Um, there's a place and a time for all of that. Uh, but that's not up my alley at this stage in life. The place is in your front yard. (laughs) Well, if, if we're, if we're qualifying Brad Geffert's terminology of wolf, then maybe our front yard might have a wolf, but I'm fairly right. certain it's a big coyote. Um, I did leave partway through the, you know, about five minutes ago, I stepped outside quick in the backyard and uh, there were definitely some coyotes howling in the backyard tonight. Oh yeah. We got them back by us too. All right. So when in Rome, what you Tradi- got? Traditional barbecue or traditional grilling food here with, with grilling. Well, grilling season never really stops, but it's called grilling, not barbecuing. First of I, all, no, I 100, 100% agree with you. 100 and 100% agree with you. So, traditional grilling food, burger, hot dog, brat. You're eating any one of these three. Do you, where do you go for condiments? Can you go, can you go dry? Do you go ketchup? Do you go mustard? Do you go ketchup and mustard? Is there something else you do? Um, But really, I'm kind of interested if you can go without those condiments on any of those three foods. Okay. So first of all, didn't know this question was coming. Karen has a name for me when it comes to those things, which is? The condiment king. (laughs) With that being said, no chance I'm going dry. Give me ketchup. Give me some mustard. Give me some spicy brown mustard. Give me some horseradish. Give me some relish on there. Give me some kraut. Dude, I'll, I'll the, take it all. The condiment king bread. When I was helping you in the barn last week and we had brats, you didn't have regular mustard in your fridge. It's because I had the good spicy horseradish stuff. Oh, that's like a, that's like a 9.5 IPA. Yes, absolutely. Plus, you got to remember, I don't do the grocery shopping, so I don't really get a say in what comes into my home. If you would have known Brad Gefford as a single man, that's all I would have had in my is different <laughs> condiment. I eat ham and cheese sandwiches every night for dinner. And the only thing that was different was the condiments I put on Ooh, the ham and so, cheese sandwich. So ketchup or mustard on your ham sandwich? depends on the day like even days odd days monday wednesday friday tuesday thursday so if it's like sliced meat from the deli i'm going mustard if i'm like cutting a piece of ham like off of the bone i'm going ketchup there you go that's the grossest thing i've heard all day <laughs> which part hands down which I'm part with down. i'm with you girl which part the ketchup or the mustard the ketchup oh. ah you're dumb <laughs> for me I can absolutely go dry on a brat. Oh, probably can on a hot dog because I like a good cold hot dog straight out of the refrigerator and one off the grill in a bun ain't much different. 
I'll never put ketchup on any of those things because that is an abomination. But a good <laughs> mustard has its place. Wait, so you can go just mustard? Absolutely. Oh, sure. I that's got the, hair on my chest, which you can't. Come that's on. That's the traditional way to eat hair on my chest. <laughs> that's a traditional way to eat a bratwurst is just with mustard. Thank you. Yes, it's fantastic. Cool. Ketchup. Any good German will tell you just mustard. Yeah, well, I'm German, but I'm going ketchup and mustard. You're not it, German. I'm not. I'm just saying that's what they tell me. Okay. Karen's going ketchup, no mustard? Uh, mustard is like a swear word in my vocabulary. <laughs> um, I could go without on everything if I had to, but I would prefer ketchup and a slice of cheddar cheese. I would put a slice of cheddar cheese on all of them. Ooh, on a hot dog even. Yes, why not? All right. But cheese makes more sense in a hot dog meat to me than a brat. I've done it on all of them. Okay. They do cheddar brats, Justin. I know, right. I don't like them. <laughs> I don't love them either. I'm just saying it's a thing. Oh, I get it. You're right, I get it. Um, I, I will say I can go dry if it's a brat that's been grilled and put in the fridge and left over, I can pull that thing out and eat that cold with nothing on it. Because yeah. <laughs> then it's like eating a cold sausage. Sure. Um, if, if you're hungry, you'll eat anything. That's true. That's Absolutely. True. Absolutely. All right. That was a spirited conversation that I didn't expect. But anyways. <laughs> hey, when you leave it up to the condiment king, you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> By the way, the Geffords do have the good cheese. They got that brick of cheddar. Always. <laughs> oh, my. Hey, you got to come over. I think the snow's going to be gone. I think Saturday or Sunday, uh, you and Brogan should come over. We can go do some antler shad hunting. I'm on my way with my turkey call. All right. We'll put some Geffert pig pork chops on the grill. Yeah. Yeah. Justin, what do you got for us? Did you know? Did you know? Or do you know? I'll ask the question. Do you know where the word Berkebiner comes from? I feel like I did the week or two before you went up there. I feel like I saw it somewhere, <laughs> but now I have like an absolute blank mind. Okay. No idea. Berkebiner is a Norwegian word, and it means birch leggings. Back in the day, when they were cross-country skiing in Norway, not as a sport, but as a means of transport through heavy, deep snow, they would wrap birch bark around their legs, kind of from their knees down to their ankles, to keep their legs partially dry and warm. So that's where the word comes from. Birch Brad, Brad, do you think that's more or less expensive than those gators you want to buy from First Light? <laughs> Um, way more comfortable to buy the gators from first. Because it's life. the same thing. <laughs> but don't tell my wife. She didn't hear. Especially don't tell her about the merino wool uh, <laughs> pants that I want to buy. <laughs> On that note, we better start wrapping up. We got to start wrapping some football, some spring football, so I can pay for some of this stuff. Coming up, two weeks here. We got a scrimmage coming up. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thanks everybody for tuning in. That was probably a little bit of a marathon episode. Thank you, Karen, for your expertise. And uh, I thought we had awesome conversations, uh, different perspectives, which I think is always good, especially on a topic like this. So um, thanks everybody for tuning in. And remember, you can 
find the show on YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube channel, Freshman Parking Lot. And it's also available on all those different podcast apps that Nate will get out for us at some point. I don't know. It's Thursday night right now, probably sometime tomorrow. Uh, so, you know, check in with us. Let us know what you think. Feedback has been great uh, recently, and um, we will see you guys hopefully next week. Thanks a lot. Peace.